This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. In the middle part of the 20th century, if there was a news story about a peacemaking mission around the globe, chances are it contained the name of African-American diplomat Ralph Bunch. A scholar of world affairs and race relations, Bunch was recruited from academia, first into the U.S. State Department, then into the fledgling United Nations. He stepped boldly onto the world stage as a peace negotiator and advocate for the liberation of peoples of color from colonial rule. Along the way, he was targeted and cleared of communist allegations, criticized as a pawn of the white establishment, and ultimately heralded as a role model for all in human relations. Today on Peace Talks, a profile in peace featuring Ralph Bunch. Stay tuned. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls. Today, a profile in peace as we explore the life of Ralph Johnson Bunch. These successful armistice negotiations have demonstrated conclusively the ability of the United Nations to mediate a serious conflict and to avert a dangerous threat to the peace. That's United Nations diplomat Ralph Bunch at the docks in New York, returning to the United States on boat after securing the first major Arab-Israeli armistice in 1949. Bunch's successful mission earned him the world's top honor in peacemaking. The scene is a meeting of the United Nations General Assembly at Flushing Meadows. A U.N. official walks in, almost unnoticed except by the alert newsreel cameraman. He is Dr. Ralph Bunch, who only a few hours before was announced winner of the 1950 Nobel Peace Prize. First Negro ever to win the award, he is warmly congratulated. For over 25 years after World War II ended, the fledgling United Nations turned again and again to Ralph Bunch to lead peacemaking missions around the globe. A tireless proponent of human and civil rights, Bunch was instrumental in cooling down hot spots through negotiation and setting the world stage for the transformation from colonial rule to independence for nations in Africa and Asia. In the 1950s, he was also put in charge of setting up the International Atomic Energy Agency and its Atoms for Peace project, exploring peaceful uses for atomic energy. Today on Peace Talks Radio, we'll highlight just a few chapters from this remarkable life and try to take away some lessons about peacemaking as we talk to Bunch's U.N. colleague and biographer, Sir Brian Urquhart, William Greaves, a filmmaker who produced a PBS documentary on Bunch, Tanya Covington, a diversity trainer inspired by Ralph Bunch, and with Ralph Bunch, Jr., son of the late Ralph Bunch. Born to humble circumstances in Detroit in 1904, Ralph Bunch was inspired by proud parents, and a grandmother determined to see that he was not intimidated by any circumstance or racial prejudice. Bunch was educated at UCLA and later Harvard and taught at Howard University in Washington, D.C. At each institution, he wrote compellingly about the need for governments around the world to live up to the kind of ideals expressed in the U.S. Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and the Constitution. One historian said he was not only a role model for African Americans, but was also a role model for anyone and everyone when it comes to human relations. Well, I think that's absolutely true. Sir Brian Urquhart is a former undersecretary of the United Nations, who worked with Ralph Bunch for 20 years until Bunch's death at the age of 67 in 1971. Uh, Ralph himself, though he was extremely proud of, of his African American background, 
uh, very much disliked the idea that he was the first American Negro to do this or that, or that he was in some way different from everybody else. He, he saw the whole human race as, as uh, not as brothers, but as people who deserve to be helped and whose problems uh, he, he wished to devote his life to. And that's what he did uh, pretty consistently, right from his relatively early days. Ralph Bunch, an outstanding athlete and scholar in school uh, at UCLA, summa cum laude, Phi Beta Kappa, and he delivers the class valedictory address at graduation. Even just in his 20s, uh, the words in the speech that he called the fourth dimension of personality seem to hold a lot of um, what will drive him throughout his entire life. Let me just read a little bit of this. It says, Man learns and knows but he does not do as well as he knows. This is his weakness. The future peace and harmony of the world are contingent upon the ability, yours and mine, to effect a remedy. This was really kind of a signpost for the rest of his days, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I think uh, Ralph, from, a, from an extraordinarily early time, uh, he, 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 just let's go back a bit. I mean, he was headed for the usual kind of purely uh, employment-favorable kind of uh, what passed for an education for young black men in Los Angeles in 1919-20. And his grandmother, who was uh, virtually illiterate, had insisted uh, that he not have that kind of education, that he go into the serious subjects that white boys went into, uh, and in Ralph's case, that was very much politics, international politics, and political science. And I think he, once that field had been opened up to him, he realized the extraordinary gap between knowledge and actual performance, particularly in the political and diplomatic worlds. And in that uh, speech you just uh, you just quoted from, he really outlines for himself uh, what he was going to do. I don't think he... And this is interesting because he, what he was set to do was to become an academic, and he was an academic basically all his life, which is one of the reasons why he was so successful in the UN, because he had a very powerful analytical mind, and it was fired by a, by a passion for justice and a passion for trying to resolve problems from which many human beings suffered. And he made it a, a rule that there was no human problem which which was not susceptible to some kind of improvement, no matter how long it took, which is one of the reasons why he was such a good negotiator. And I think that, I think that the, it is an extraordinary thing to see a young man uh, who would come as far as he had already uh, sketch out almost unknowingly the, the course he himself was going to take. Yeah. Right. Uh, he explores French colonialism in Africa for his doctoral studies when he goes back to study at Harvard uh, after a bit of time at Howard. And again, this exploration presages his work at the UN. After Italy invades and colonizes Ethiopia, he publishes this book called A Worldview of Race. And am I correct in hearing that it took him a week to write this book? Yes, he, he is a book he deeply disapproved of ever after. Partly, I mean, I think it's a magnificent book, but he felt he hadn't had really time to consider it and make it perfect. And uh, yes, it was written in 30 days. Well, many scholars say its relevance to world racial politics is still lasting. I think it's extremely... 
I think the, the important thing about a worldview of race and about the early results of Ralph Bunch's research, especially in Africa, as for that thesis, is that he found, to his great surprise, that the treatment of, uh, well, let's call them Negroes, the treatment of Negroes in the United States was really very much similar to what was happening in the colonial world. That the, At that time, something over one-third of the territory of the world was, was colonial territory, um, dominated by great empires, first of all the British, the French, and then the French and the Belgians and the Germans in second, third, and fourth place, and the Portuguese in fifth place. Uh, and he suddenly realized that the same conditions applied and that, that there was a, an enormously important parallel between the racial situation in the United States and the problems of the imperial colonial world outside. And he regarded them really as both branches of the same problem. And that was what his first, his first uh, great, uh, not enthusiasm, but uh, his first great obsession uh, was that this was something that you had to do something about. Well, Ralph Bunch, as a key advisor to the San Francisco League of Nations conference, the, which was setting up basically the charter for the post-war world, he uh, zoomed in on this issue of colonialism. And in the documentary, you talk about the importance of drafting in peace negotiations or in drawing up uh, the League of Nations charter, something you said Bunch was especially uh, good at throughout his career. Can you elaborate on this and suggest what uh, what Bunch could do so well that is still crucial for negotiations of all kinds today? Or it will be. Well, my, my sort of vision of Ralph, who is, I think, the person I spent more hours with in my entire life than anybody else, uh, is of him hunched over a, a legal-sized pad with a whole supply of pencils and writing in longhand a whole number of things, mostly formulas to try to get around problems that had come up during the day. And uh, he he was a great perfectionist. As I said, he was an academic. And uh, Ralph's great genius was to be able to listen all day to two or three or whatever it was sized to a conflict, and then to in the night to write up a form of words which they could all accept, which would mean you could move forward. Of course, the great classic example of this was the armistice agreements between Israel and her five Arab neighbors, which he drafted and got and got agreed on in uh, 1949. But he could do this. This was one of the reasons why he was, was so, so good in negotiation. He could uh, intuit in his own mind the problems and the fears and the difficulties of the people he was dealing with, not least the kind of reception they were, they were going to get when they went back home if they had given away too much. And he could get all that working with the objections they had made to some previous proposal. And he could reformulate that proposal in a way that would give everybody just enough leeway to get through. It's something that very few people can do. And it... To do it, you have to have, first of all, an enormously uh, acute uh, analytical mind, and secondly, a very great capacity for understanding the difficulties of other people. What you're talking about is a capacity for empathy as well. Absolutely. 
I mean, somebody once said that uh, the, one of the generals who Ralph employed in somewhere, I think, in the Middle East, once said that Ralph had the kindest eyes that, that he'd ever seen. And I think it was true. He was, he was a person who really had an unusual appreciation and liking for his fellow human beings. And curiously enough, it's not necessarily a very common uh, common quality. Uh, he, he really cared about the whole idea of helping people in trouble, and those were the people he was interested in. He was surprisingly little interested in very important people, celebrities, that kind of thing. He really didn't mind about them at all. But he was deeply interested in the lives of ordinary people and how you could improve them. And that gave him a, 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 a very great motivation for, for getting on with these extremely difficult subjects, these situations. Did he also have a skill for being present and, I would presume, an extraordinary skill at uh, listening? He was an incredibly good listener. In fact, I think it was uh, Moshe Dayan, who was at that time an up-and-coming general in the Israeli army, who once described during the armistice agreements, he said that uh, Bunch would sit there for hours uh, and just looking at the person who was speaking, absolutely unmoving, and you could somehow see the, the this this knowledge being received into some central area of his brain and being sort of filed accurately so that he could pull it out later on. And he was a very, very good listener. Sir Brian Urquhart wrote Ralph Bunch, An American Life. He was a colleague of Ralph Bunch's and himself a former undersecretary of the United Nations. I'm Paul Ingalls, and you're listening to a Peace Talks radio special, Ralph Bunch, A Profile in Peace. We're spotlighting the late diplomat and scholar and Nobel Peace Prize winner who died in 1971. Later in the program, we'll hear from his son, Ralph Bunch Jr., as well as award-winning filmmaker William Greaves, who produced the documentary Ralph Bunch, An American Odyssey. We're going to hear an excerpt from that film now. Sir Brian Urquhart and other historians and principals in the 1949 Middle East Armistice negotiations recalling the mission that won Bunch and the U.N. the 1950 Nobel Prize for Peace. The documentary was narrated by actor Sidney Poitier. In his opening statements, I can readily think of a million ways to stall, delay, obstruct, and stalemate these discussions should anyone care to do so. There are many eyes focused on what is happening here. You cannot afford to fail. You must succeed. I have faith that you will succeed. Bunch arrived in Rhodes in January with really no guidelines for this at all. Nobody had ever done this before. The Egyptians had a problem because they had told their people that they were winning, but of course they were losing. The Israelis had a problem because they were determined to fix the Egyptians in such a way that they really give far more than they thought they were going to give. And that was a problem for Bunch because he had to try to moderate the Israelis, get them to accept things they didn't want to accept, and at the same time produce the absolute minimum the Egyptians could get by with with their own people in Cairo. And it was an immense task. There was no such thing as a working day. There was simply work. Occasionally he went to sleep, others went to sleep. One didn't worry about when one day ended and the other one began. The chances were you were involved in a process where every opportunity had to be seized to try to push through an agreement. 
Bunch writes to Ruth. This is killing work. I haven't been out of the hotel for two weeks now. I talk, argue, coax, threaten these stubborn people day and night in an effort to reach an agreement. Sometimes I feel that I should just tell them to go home and forget about an armistice. Rhodes was a very curious place. There was nothing to do in Rhodes in winter, nothing. The only recreation was billiards and ping pong, both of which Bunch was very good at. Bunch writes, There's a cat and mouse game going on here between each of them and me. They would be happy if I would terminate the negotiations and just relieve them of any responsibility. But I'm not going to take that rap. All of a sudden, one morning, somebody came, a messenger from Bunch, saying he would like to meet all the members of the Israeli delegation in his bedroom. We were a little startled, but uh, okay, we went. And in the meantime, he sent another messenger to the Egyptian delegation, telling them that he would like to see them in his bedroom. In the bedroom, there was a large chest of drawers. Ralph had had two sets of plates made, marked Rhodes Armistice Talks, 1949. He opened the drawer and said, now look, look at these lovely plates which I prepared especially for you. When you sign the agreement, uh, each of you is going to get one of these plates as a souvenir uh, of these uh, negotiations. Uh, but if you don't reach agreement, I personally will break these plates over your heads. Of course, everybody burst out laughing, and that was the end of the impasse. This was a typical Ralph Bunch maneuver. 1 p.m. Wednesday, February 23rd, the Egyptians return from Cairo with the full agreement of their government. Bunch schedules a simple signing ceremony for 10.30 a.m. the following day. Within one year, Lebanon, Transjordan, and Syria will each sign a similar agreement with Israel, drafted by Ralph Bunch. The armistice agreement is a, really a work of diplomatic art. There were elements here which are usually associated with peace agreements, but um, he had the intuition that uh, low profile, just call it an armistice. So here was this agreement, which is unique in diplomatic literature, because it is really much more than the title says. Basically, I think the Arabs felt that he was not sufficiently attuned and sufficiently sympathetic to the Palestinian Arab peoples at that time, although throughout his career he always said that that problem in that part of the world would not be solved until the problem of the Palestinian Arab refugees was resolved. Briefly, his mandate was to bring peace to Palestine, not to bring justice to the Palestinians. And to that extent, those of us who are interested in justice are not happy with his working for the peace, neglecting justice. But he couldn't do the two things at the same time. All in all, I think uh, he deserves an A-plus from me. An excerpt from the William Greaves documentary, Ralph Bunch, An American Odyssey. More now from our 2007 conversation with Sir Brian Urquhart, former Undersecretary of the UN, who worked with Bunch for over 20 years. He spoke with us from his home in New York City. The 1949 negotiations were extraordinary enough to merit Ralph Bunch 
the offer of the 1950 Nobel Peace Prize, which you say he actually tried to turn down. Is that right? Yeah, well, Ralph was a very unusual public figure. He, he, just, he, loved, he loved the work and the responsibility, but he hated all the, all the celebrity status and all that kind of thing that surrounded it. And he didn't. He didn't. Uh, he wrote to the to the prize committee in, um, which is in Oslo, which is a committee of the Norwegian Parliament, and uh, said that he was very grateful for this honour and so on. But he couldn't accept it because he was a member of the UN Secretariat, and uh, he was just doing his job. And uh, he wasn't really he wasn't really doing that job in order to get a prize. Well, that, all hell broke loose. Nobody had ever done this before. And uh, the Secretary General was a Norwegian, Trygve Lee, who called Bunch in and said, you cannot possibly refuse the Nobel Peace Prize. This is a prize which is of enormous value to the United Nations, and you have to accept it. And more or less ordered him to take it, so he, uh, so he, he did accept it. But it was very typical of, of Bunch. I mean, one of the difficulties about trying to get people to understand how extraordinarily important Ralph Munch is even now to the future because of all the things he did and the ways of doing things which can be still used and so on, is that he himself never told anyone about anything he'd done. He absolutely refused. He never boasted about anything. I mean, when I started to write his, I'd been with Bunch day and night for nearly 20 years, and I thought I knew all about him. And when I discovered, when I started to write this book and got into his papers and everything, I discovered that I knew virtually nothing about him at all. I had no idea of the things he'd done. He was a very unusual person in this way. And I rather wish that he'd been a little bit more forthcoming, because I think people might have understood what an extraordinary uh, figure he was. I mean, a figure of enormous importance for the 20th century. Well, you mentioned some of the other things that uh, were groundbreaking that he and you worked t- together on. Israel, Britain, and France collaborated on an invasion of Egypt in part to take the Suez Canal and overthrow Nasser in 1956, I guess. And yeah. Ralph Bunch is instrumental in setting up the first UN peacekeeping mission. Well, this is a typical case in point. Ra- Ralph actually had set up the first peacekeeping operation already in 1948, which was the Observer Group in Palestine which incidentally still exists. It's called the United Nations Truth Supervision Organization in Palestine. It still exists in a rather reduced form. And um, this had uh, uh, the the kind of basic rules which peacekeeping demands, the complete impartiality, uh, the the non-use of force by the the group, and so on, and and, and never allowing either side to get, uh, get an advantage through the agreement. Uh, peacekeeping was a concept which was very much developed by Bunch himself. It was using soldiers in a completely non-fighting uh, capacity. And that is to say, they're not allowed to use force in, in, except in self-defense. And, um, and pe- in fact, people, it, it was something which the military in most countries thought was a lot of absolute nonsense. And it took them a very long time to, to discover that it actually could be made to work very well if it was backed by a powerful political leadership which which kept it on track. And that's very much what Bunch provided. Uh, he also, in 1956 at the Suez Crisis, was very anxious to show that we could do this. And then we had to work out uh, all of the details. Uh, you know, what, how it was going to act, what, who it was going to be, uh, how to get it there, how to feed it, who uh, who was going to command it, and so on. 
Uh, and I think everybody, most governments thought, well, well this will be a matter of a year or so. I mean, it's just one of those things the UN does. It's a nice idea, but nothing really happens. Bunch, well, I remember vividly, Bunch was absolutely determined to show that that wasn't going to happen. And he can, he can, we, in fact, we had far more offers of troops uh, than, than we needed. And he put together a force of some 6,000 troops uh, in a matter of days. I think I'm right in saying eight days after the first decision to create this force. This was something nobody believed possible, and indeed you can't do it now either. Bunch did it, I think, simply by working. To all, we worked all day and all night getting this whole thing ready, and there were endless problems. I love that story about the plan to use berets, but they would have taken six weeks to Yeah, order. well, this was the, <laughs> I was the, actually, curious enough, the only person uh, in the Secretary General's office who had any military experience. I'd been in the British Army for six years during the war. And um, so I, I actually, was, I think that all that uh, experience is quite useful. I thought we should, have, we, in order to emphasize the, peace, the, the peaceful uh, nature of this force, we, they should wear blue berets. Uh, and then we discovered it took six weeks to get, uh, get 7,000 blue berets made, which was hopeless. And then I had the idea that we should uh, take the plastic helmet liner of the American battle helmet, which is really two helmets, and have those simply uh, spray-painted uh, UN blue, and, uh, and put those on the troops as they arrived. And the United States cooperated wonderfully. They had them all ready in about 24 hours and sent, us, sent them to, to Ismailia, where the soldiers were landing. And so we had them all dressed in, bl in blue helmets the moment they got to Egypt, which actually, curious enough, symbolically, was very important because it, they showed that they were different from the British or the French or the Israelis or indeed anybody else comes out. They were something special and new. Right. Finally, uh, you, you said that you learned more from Ralph Bunch than anyone else. Um, when you think about him fondly, what has stayed with you over time that, that uh, really resonates in your heart about your association with him? Well, first, what stays with me is, is the extraordinary integrity of Ralph. I mean, it was absolutely impossible to get Ralph to do something he thought was wrong or underhand or dishonest. Completely impossible. He wouldn't do it. Secondly, an amazing modesty. The grander Ralph got, the nicer he became and the more fun. He was a most friendly, incredibly kind, uh, wonderful friend. I mean, it, it took about three years to get Ralph's confidence. But once you got it, uh, he, he was your friend forever. And, 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 and he, he, he was friends with a surprising number of people uh, mostly uh, people who worked for him and, and got to know him well. Um, I think that his, his intellectual ability was somewhat concealed by his, his kindness and his kind of uh, lack of pretension. He, he had a formidable analytical intellect, a formidable. Uh, and, uh, and this was, came into, into play all the time on serious problems. And I think he also was capable of, of innovating without even knowing he was innovating. I mean, he just sort of things in the middle of the night. For example, one of the things in armistice agreements, which is now quite, uh, quite common, is, is the demilitarized zone. 
if you can't agree where the line goes, you create a zone called the demilitarized zone in which no soldiers are allowed from either side and leave the question of the exact line out for the time being. Uh, he invented that. He invented a whole number of things as he went along, without, I think without even knowing he did it. He just was a very genuine, uh, an extraordinary person, quite the, quite the most remarkable person that I've met in public life, I think. So, Brian Urquhart, thank you so much, first, for your service to the world and also for sharing your memories about Ralph Bunch with us today. Uh, my great pleasure. Former Undersecretary of the United Nations, Sir Brian Urquhart. He worked with Ralph Bunch and authored the biography, Ralph Bunch, An American Life. I'm Paul Ingalls, and you're listening to Ralph Bunch, Profile in Peace, a Peace Talks Radio special. When we continue, Ralph Bunch's son, Ralph Bunch Jr., and later film documentarian, William Greaves all after this break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls. All of the programs in our series can be heard online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can also sign up for a monthly newsletter, order CDs, and make a tax-deductible contribution to our program to make sure talk of peacemaking and nonviolence has a place on the airwaves, all at peacetalksradio.com. Today, another program in our Profiles in Peace series. We're highlighting a sometimes overlooked figure in the world of diplomacy, Ralph Bunch, who negotiated tirelessly for the United Nations for over 25 years after World War II. He worked for peace all over the globe and helped bring independence from colonial rule to many Africans and Asians. He also wrote compellingly about human rights and civil rights. Many believe his international work helped set the stage for improvements in civil rights for African Americans in the United States. Ralph Bunch died in 1971. But we continue our talk about his life and times, and we're pleased to have with us his son, Ralph Bunch Jr. Welcome, Ralph. Thank you very much. It's good to have you here. Ralph Bunch Jr. is a financial and development consultant for countries in Africa. He worked for many years as an investment banker, beginning with a position at the then Citibank in its Africa division, and he now lives in London. Also joining us in the studio is Tanya Covington, a mediator and diversity trainer who lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She was a guest on a 2003 Peace Talks program about improving race relations. She suggested a program on Ralph Bunch then, so we've invited her to be back with us on today's show. Tanya, welcome. Thank you. Later, we hope to talk with filmmaker Bill Greaves, who produced the film Ralph Bunch, an American Odyssey for PBS. I'd actually like to start with Tanya Covington as an example of Ralph Bunch's legacy. 
Tanya, an African-American who was born in Washington, D.C. in 1955. So you would have been a teenager uh, when Ralph Bunch Sr. passed away. When do you recall becoming aware of his story, and how has it impacted you? Um, actually, I knew about Dr. Bunch uh, from a very early childhood. I come from a very, very political family um, in Washington, D.C. So I was taught um, African, African-American history very early on, even before I started, before I started school. And Dr. Bunch was one of the heroes that uh, my parents talked to me about. There was also um, a sort of a, a running joke in my in my family, even though at the time I didn't know the term mediator. Whenever anyone would get into an argument and someone would step in and try and calm the argument, someone in the family would say, we don't need you to Ralph Bunch our argument. <laughs> um, so I knew early on that uh, he had the role of, of a peacemaker, the person who, who solved the arguments. And I think because of that, um, he was always of interest to me, and also because uh, because I knew that he had, win, had won the Nobel Peace Prize. And then years later, when I started learning um, about mediation, I decided to learn even more um, about him as uh, as my role model, and I think I've been a fan of his for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Ralph Bunch Jr., what do you think was at the core of his conflict resolution philosophy that, that made him successful? He uh, was a tireless worker. Um, as a family, we didn't see him very much, uh, but a very good. He was a good father, but we, he wasn't home a lot. Um, he was an excellent listener uh, on both sides of the conflict. He knew how to relax people with humor. And only after studying for quite some time and thinking about it was he able to find compromises that seemed to appeal to both parties. Um, he never believed that uh, um, fighting it out was, it was the solution. So he started with a bias against uh, armed conflict. Um, and through humor and long hours, um, he was able to relax the parties that they were going to get a semblance of a fair shake on both sides of it. Mm-hmm. How, how do you recall him sort of communicating the message of nonviolence and tolerance and conflict resolution uh, to you and your sisters? Was there something conscious that you can recall uh, you know uh, about conversations that the family would have in in those times uh, no i think but i think it's it's more of living in the forties and fifties uh, and we i don't think we appreciate it in America. I think we'd look back on it now and said, God, that was a great time and it was a great time for our country after the war. We were heroes, obviously we had a strong economy. And he was very clear. He just didn't believe that fighting was the solution uh, to anything. Um, what we all learned after the Second World War is this is not the way forward. Um, and there has to be a better solution. And that's what he believed in. And hopefully that's what the United Nations did. And now it hopefully can recreate itself uh, in a way that uh, the world will look to it for a conflict resolution as opposed to uh, what's happening with us today, which – you in a sort of a second thought. Mm-hmm. Let me ask uh, Tanya or Ralph to uh, comment on this. What do we know of um, Ralph Bunch Sr.'s historical influences? I mean, we know that Gandhi had read Tolstoy 
and Thoreau and the Bible on his path to nonviolence and that Dr. Martin Luther King did, of course, and then added the writings of Gandhi. I don't know um, exactly who he was um, reading. I have um, read somewhat in his biography about uh, the people that he was exposed to um, in growing up. Um, I think he had a, a very strong uh, parents and grand and grandmother um, as well, who I think really worked hard to um, instill in him very good values, which um, he seems to seem to have not only um, gotten the way that uh, that some kids do, but to have incorporated into his spirit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't say specifically, but I can tell you he was a voracious reader, um, a reader of books and theories, and uh, philosophy, um, not, not as much economics. He was, he was much more of a uh, political historian, if you will, as, a, as opposed to an economic historian. He believed, as I've said, that uh, you can only learn by reading, and, uh, and you teach yourself as much as you uh, are taught by others. Your father was born in Detroit in 1903, he lived in an integrated neighborhood there, but his parents were in poor health, so they moved to New Mexico in 1914. It seems like your father's years in New Mexico were probably influential in terms of his understanding race relations. He would have been interacting with Native Americans and Mexicans and uh, also dealing with racial prejudice that was here at the time. My dad did experience a lot of uh, intolerance and prejudice. But I think he realized that uh, there are ways to defeat intolerance and prejudice by intellectual curiosity and totally not accepting any intolerance. I mean, he basically believed, as most people I hopefully do, that we're all created equal. We may have different, different opportunities and different skill sets, but uh, that shouldn't be prejudicial to our development. And so he was totally intolerant for any prejudice. I mean, the story that was involving myself is is, uh, the one I remember the most, which is we were living in Forest Hills when the U.S. Tennis Open was still played at the Forest Hills Tennis Club. And I was encouraged to take tennis lessons. And I wasn't bad at the stage. I wasn't great, but I wasn't bad. But the pro thought that I had some potential and encouraged us to join the club. Well, I, we said, okay, and my dad applied. This was 1957, I think. I guess it was, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were accepted, uh, but on a on the basis that uh, we would get honorary memberships, and my dad didn't understand what this was about, and we realized what this was about is that they had no people of color or uh, uh, non-Christians in the club. Um, so... Uh, categorically, we would not accept it, and we never did accept it. I never joined the club, and the club changed. Um, but one of the things in my in my father's history, people um, do not think he uh, spoke out enough against uh, racial intolerance. I, every speech I've ever heard him make, and I've heard him make made uh, uh, quite a number. He did uh, obviously state his position on uh, non-acceptance of any discrimination, based on the fact that he did experience a lot of discrimination when he was growing up. He had the view, however, that he was an international civil servant and had to be very careful that he didn't get involved in domestic politics because he didn't support, if you will, outrightly one party versus another party. 
and he didn't want to get that to conflict with what his role was in, as an international civil servant. But there was no doubt in my mind and no doubt anybody who knew him that he was a strong believer uh, in no racial uh, bigotry and would not accept it. And uh, to his dying day, he never did. One of the interesting things uh, I think that, that may have shaped him is uh, uh, when Dr. Bunch Sr. lived in Albuquerque, uh, because of the small African-American population in Albuquerque, the public schools were never segregated here. And so he did have the opportunity to go to school with kids from, from lots of different races. And I'm sure that that had an impact on him in that um, he got to see early on uh, what a multicultural society was actually like and got the opportunity to uh, um to live that, and uh, I'm sure that's something that, that stayed with him um, for a very long time. It so stayed I, with him. He passed it on to his family, and mm-hmm. it's what we firmly believe in. Um, he, I mean, he, he never believed in separate schools for separate uh, races or religions. Mm-hmm. He thought that we would all grow and develop more by sharing views and thoughts and backgrounds and, and idiosyncrasies. Yeah, I and think he didn't believe that we should, you know, um, water down our background, not at all, but we should develop it, but in a way that we could all work together for the good of mankind, if you will, or for our own development. I think it's also um, very interesting. I um, just, within the last couple of years, uh, came across a uh, picture that was taken of Dr. Bunch with Martin Luther King at an NAACP meeting. And I always think that perhaps one of the things that um, helped make it a little bit easier for Dr. Martin Luther King to have been able to embrace peace is that Dr. Ralph Bunch had gone before him and showed an excellent um, example of what that looks like on an international stage and that perhaps that might have made it that much easier for Martin Luther King to do that um, on a national stage. Let me ask you both to comment on this question. Uh, Ralph Bunch faced conflict over race relations and conflict over warring countries uh, throughout his career, and he confronted all of those directly, earned his reputation as a peacemaker and a skilled negotiator. What are some of the overriding principles that he followed and, and techniques that he applied that individuals can pick up on and apply to everyday life. And maybe, Tanya, let me start with you because it seems like you might have thought about this. Well, I think one of the, the most um, Im- important things, um, as as Ralph Jr. has said, is that um, Ralph Bunch and I think every everyone else who is um, a good peacemaker and negotiator begins by being a good listener. Um, and beyond even being a good listener, they are genuinely interested in the well-being um, of other people and, and other groups. And I think that that's one of the things that I certainly see that has been somewhat missing in a lot of what's going on in the in the uh, current situation is when you have people who are only concerned about themselves um, or their particular party or country and not as much concerned about um, the well-being of, of the world. Um, then you're then you're always going to have problems. It's difficult to make peace if you aren't genuinely concerned about the people that you're trying to make peace with. And your work is often on a smaller scale. Mm-hmm. 
So what about the application of those principles? Same thing. I find that when I go into a conflict um, situation, um, I try and go in, go into it um, looking at it um, as though what I'm going to do is not only important to the people that I'm that I'm working with, the people who are in conflict, but it's important to me. Um, I feel like every uh, thing that we do is sort of like uh, the ripples in a pond. If we've got a small disagreement over here, it causes ripple, ripples and then more, and it causes more and more, and pretty soon you end up with a, with a tidal wave. Um, but if you can begin to smooth out um, all of those, those different uh, ripples that are going on, then you end up with a with a peaceful body of water, and I feel like um, we are all very much intertwined, far more than we know. Um, so to make peace anywhere, um, in any situation, I feel like helps the uh, greater whole. Mm. Ralph, what, what what do you think about what people can draw from your father's history and legacy on a day to day basis? I think that one of the problems we have today is that, and maybe we've had in the past, that there are certain groups that have a vested interest in maintaining a warlike outlook and really don't want peace. I think my father, when he did most of his work, he was in situations where people had differences of view and differences of land mass on economics, etc., but generally didn't have a long-term interest in, in, in preserving a warlike situation as we have in Northern Ireland, if you will, at a certain stage. And maybe we have uh, in Afghanistan and maybe we're going to have in Iraq at this point in time. So I think the, 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 I think the, the landscape has changed uh, today. And I think there are lessons to be learned, as we've talked about, in terms of how you negotiate for peace, but I think you have to learn. You have to understand the economic and the political background of individual groups to be able to negotiate with them on what's right for them and what's right for their opponent. Um, we cannot ignore the history of these groups and what the motivation of them and what the what, what the backing for these groups are. Now, some of them are going to be splinter groups, and that's where the problem is. If they're splinter groups, and they're and they have a hold, and I, I personally believe Hezbollah is a splinter group, uh, for instance, today. Uh, but it does have a hold, a hold on the local population, part of the local population, and it's hard to extract itself. And what Hezbollah would do without the conflict is is, a, is a interesting question. Probably wouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. But in any case, a sort of an empathic understanding of what all of these constituencies and groups are um, representing is is key. Absolutely. That's the key. You have to understand that and you have to build on that knowledge. I want to thank both Tanya Covington and Ralph Bunch Jr. for joining us for this discussion and these memories of Ralph Bunch. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to a Peace Talks radio special, Ralph Bunch, Profile in Peace. And in a moment, we'll go back to the phone line to New York City to talk with award-winning filmmaker William Greaves whose documentary called Ralph Bunch, An American Odyssey, aired on PBS in 2001 and is still available for educational use. Here's an excerpt from that film, this chapter exploring Ralph Bunch's engagement in the civil rights movement of the 1960s in the United States. Actor Sidney Poitier narrates. The Great March on Washington. Bunch marches and speaks to the throne. 
my identification with this effort for the emancipation of the Negro, the full emancipation of the Negro, is automatic because I am a Negro. But I am here also and would be here also automatically as an American. Because what is being done here today is, in my view, one of the truest and finest expressions of American democracy at work. The U.S. was being embarrassed around the globe by the existence of segregation within the United States. It was, in fact, a Cold War propaganda tool that was used against the United States. Um, and in his effort to bring freedom to peoples of color around the globe, Ralph Bunch increased the level of pressure that existed on the United States. When you look at him in 1965, uh, with his coat off and marching at the front of the line in Selma to Montgomery, you see a kind of war-weary battler uh, who's come back from the great national, international efforts uh, to, 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 to pick up the slack at home and to, and to try to achieve here what he's been working on over there. The world is overwhelmingly with us in this struggle, in this cause, of that you may be assured. I say to Governor Wallace, no American, can ever be an outsider anywhere in this nation. All of these people who have come in this great phalanx are very great Americans. You have written a great new chapter in the heroic history of American freedom. Thank you. Historians Dr. Edwin Smith of the University of Southern California and Dr. John Hope Franklin from Duke University, plus the comments of Ralph Bunch himself in the William Greaves documentary, Ralph Bunch, An American Odyssey. Bill Greaves is on the line with us now from New York. Thanks for joining us, Bill. It's a pleasure to talk with you, Paul. Why at that point do you think it was important for Dr. Bunch to to take those steps out on the streets and become more visible because it wasn't his it wasn't his modus operandi to be out front was it no that's quite true but he he real he was quite a tactician and he realized that he had succeeded with his various uh, initiatives um uh, in uh, fostering a a feeling of uh, of uh, liberalization of society was important and that the, the world was ready to uh, endorse that sort of uh, uh, thinking. And uh, he knew that the climate had reached a point where he was on the side of the gods in terms of the um, how the people in America would feel about his joining the uh, civil rights movement. Bill, I'm interested in your personal journey of discovery with this project, the documentary on Ralph Bunch. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, a statement that I read in an interview that you gave that 
admitted that you as an African-American didn't feel like you knew as much about Ralph Bunch as uh, you felt like you should have known when you began this process. That's quite true. Uh, I really didn't uh, have too high opinion of Ralph Bunch because I really didn't know anything about him. And if you didn't have a very high opinion of him to begin with, that must have been based on some undercurrent of opinion about about him and his history, right? Yes, that's quite true. Uh, I, you know, I felt that, uh, like so many uh, people uh, that I knew uh, at the time, uh, that he he wasn't a, really a very effective person. He was just uh, involved with a whole lot of uh, white people uh, who uh, were not interested in the black experience. But uh, it came to pass that as I done this, as I did this. Uh, research on him, I realized that he was a very powerful thinker, very complicated individual who uh, was a master in conflict resolution. Once he got into the United Nations uh, organizations, uh, and even before that, he, he chanced to become involved in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights with uh, he worked closely with Eleanor Roosevelt in getting the Universal Declaration of Human Rights accepted, endorsed by the United Nations, which is no small feat. Right. Well, he ended up going to Harvard for graduate school, and your documentary points out that black civil rights leaders had their eyes on him even when he was only about 25 years old as a future leader. Yes, well, you know, in an interesting and curious way, he's a kind of a precursor to uh, Barack Obama. Uh, Barack Obama is the closest thing, uh, I think, uh, to Ralph Bunch, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but Ralph Bunch was very much involved in these various uh, initiatives. Uh, the thing that really bothered him uh, all along throughout his career, particularly in the early part of his career, was simply the fact that America, uh, the American creed, was something that, uh, even though it was, it had all these lofty uh, words that uh, talked about freedom and democracy and liberty for all and all of that, the Bill of Rights and so on, he um, really felt uh, that uh, it was just so much air, you know, so much tall, small talk. He knew that uh, it was important to put teeth in, in those words. Uh, the freedom uh, and liberty to all had to be uh, words that were more than words. Uh, they were had to be realities. Well, your documentary so interestingly points out that even... In his class valedictory address at graduation at UCLA, he wrote this fourth dimension of personality speech where, let me quote from it here, he says, man professes strict moral codes, promulgates them through great educational systems and solidifies them in law, but invariably his subsequent deeds belie and pervert his original intent. I mean, this is when he is in his mid-20s. This is what you're talking about, isn't it? Exactly, precisely. That that speech uh, was, uh, you could say, is the the basis uh, was the theme of his whole life.
life of his legacy is can be summed up in in those words. Your documentary says that it was basically a good time for Dr. Bunch in the final years of his life. He died in 1971, but he began to see the wheel turning a little bit and and moving toward the hopes that he expressed in that graduation speech uh, so many years before. That's right. Quite so. What do you, in closing, Bill Greaves, hope to continue to accomplish with the availability of your film, Ralph Bunch, An American Odyssey? Uh, I like to think of my film as a kind of a, a tool that uh, young people who are interested in America, who are interested in the world and civilization, I would hope that it would give young people in college and universities uh, a real interest and enthusiasm uh, about the work and significance of Ralph Bunch and to uh, let them know that it's possible that uh, an individual can make a difference, but he does, not necessarily by waving a flag or, or marching individually, but using their intellectual uh, minds to help uh, develop a society that is, in which people can walk with dignity as all the world's great boulevards, as Bunch would say. The real objective must always be a good life for all the people. International machinery will mean something to the common man throughout the world only when it is translated into terms that he can understand. Peace, Bread, housing, clothing, education, good health, and above all, the right to walk with dignity on the world's great boulevards. The words of Ralph Bunch, as read in William Greaves' documentary, Ralph Bunch, An American Odyssey. Links to the film's website, where you can both order it and other teaching modules, can be found through our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear this and other programs in our series again, plus order CDs, sign up for a monthly newsletter, or make a tax-deductible contribution to help keep these programs on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution coming on your radio. That's all at peacetalksradio.com. Thanks to our guests, Sir Brian Urquhart, Tanya Covington, William Greaves, and Ralph Bunch, Jr. Special thanks to David Griffin and to KUNM at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Support for Peace Talks comes in part from the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Peace Tales CD Project, and from listeners like you. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening.